You're listening to the Gates Church Podcast. For more information or to support this ministry, please visit thegates.org. We are continuing, like usual, our sermon series through the letter to the Galatians. And um, you might recall a couple of weeks ago, as we were making our way through chapter 4, we took some time to draw from Paul's example uh, about how important it is to speak the truth in love. Uh, we learned that uh, we not only should be, but we need to be speaking the truth in love to one another in all circumstances uh, in order to look out for one another and, and help one another continually walk in and, and not slip away from the freedom that we've been given through Christ. Uh, and on the flip side of that, we also talked about uh, being on the other side of the conversation and how it's important that we're humbly receiving wisdom and truth from those that love us, even when it's hard to hear, right? Rather than choosing to instead listen to those that are just flattering us for their own gain or, or you know, to make us feel nice or whatever, right? And um, I'm sure I didn't really have to sum that up because you all remembered that message, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yeah? Oh, a couple of people are telling me the truth here, but some of you are like, yeah, 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 sure. Because so obviously you didn't hear the message because I'm talking about speaking the truth in love, right? Um, <laughs> but the reason uh, someone got my joke, are you just trying to flatter me or are you? Because this, this is going downhill. Um, but the reason, reason I, I, the actual reason I did sum it up today is because we're going to be doing a part two to that message. Uh, because we all want to hear more about that, right? Um, but the subject matter does come up again in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 6, actually. And it's specifically concerning how to speak the truth to one another when we're addressing some sort of sin or transgression. So it's going to be controversial today, I guess. Um, so I'm, th- I'm thankful that Bryce prayed for boldness for me because uh, this kind of conversation is always awkward. Um, but it's good. It's really important for us to, to understand this and to get this as Christians. Um, you know, like, like when, when you see your friend or, or someone from church and you see them, you know, heading down the, the wrong direction, the wrong path, so to speak, or, or doing something that dishonors God or, or doesn't line up with who they're called to be in Christ. And, and, and you're thinking, should I, should I talk to that person about it? Right? Should I, should I just tell the pastor? Or, you know, because who am I to talk to them about this? You know, how would, how would I even talk to them about this, about this, this sin that they've, they've gotten themselves into, right? Um, so we're asking all these questions when we see that kind of stuff. So never fear before you, you settle on spreading rumors about them in the form of prayer requests or uh, flooding my inbox with, with all the ways people are sinning. Um, we're going to figure out what we're actually supposed to do when we find and subsequently confront someone in their sin. And um, what we'll learn is that there are actually conditions or guidelines, which Paul, the Apostle Paul wisely lays out for us to follow in these circumstances so that we can appropriately and effectively confront one another and admonish one another with the truth. Because again, we should be watching out for each other, right? We should have each other's backs. We should be calling each other out when we're in danger, right? And, and, and we all need these checks and balances as well. But there's a right way to go, in, to go about doing it. There's a lot of messy ways to go about doing it, but there's a right way to go about doing it. So that's why today we're going to skip ahead to chapter 6 in Galatians, 
and learn about these conditions. Then we'll come back to chapter 5 uh, next week. But I wanted to, to talk about these things closer to the sermon I preached a couple weeks ago. So we're all on the same page here. So if you want to turn with me to Galatians 6, we're just going to be reading the first two verses, Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could be here, gathered in your presence, gathered as the, the body of Christ to learn from your word, Lord. And I pray that we do learn from it this morning, even though it's a challenging, maybe a little bit of a controversial topic, Lord. I pray that you would just open our hearts to receive what you have for us, Lord, and, and that, that your word would go forth and, you know, whatever's from me would just fall away, but that your word would, would go forth and, and um, just live in our hearts and, 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 and help us to mature and grow more and more into who you've called us to be, Lord. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've been known at times to dabble in the art of sarcasm. Um, Though these days I try to use it tactfully because it used to be out of control. My sarcasm used to be out of control. In my early 20s, I was sarcastic all the time. Like, Everything I said was probably sarcasm, uh, probably, you know, as a defense mechanism for my introverted social awkwardness. I don't know. I don't know why I did it, but uh, it was during my first year of marriage, uh, because marriage tends to bring out and confront our flaws in, in major ways, right? Everyone who's married, yeah, yeah. You, you really learn how selfish you are as soon as you get married, and that really uh, comes to the forefront. Um, so, of course, it was... It was um, during that first year of marriage when I learned the hard way that being sarcastic wasn't always as funny to others as it was to me, um, especially when it was towards my wife. In fact, unbeknownst to me, my sarcasm had become too much for her, and I had started to hurt her feelings when I'd speak to her that way, even though, in my mind, you know, I was just, just goofing around, I was just kidding around, having some fun, and not really being serious. But the reality was that my sarcastic comments actually started to get to her, and affect her negatively, um, because our words carry a lot more weight than we realize, right? We need to be careful what we're saying, especially when we're talking about the subject matter this morning. Uh, our words carry a lot of weight. We need to be careful. But back to the story. Eventually, you know, it came to a head, right? And, and our, we had our first big conflict in our marriage. So we both ended up confiding in, in some friends from church for, for prayer and for counsel, um, at that point, I still felt I did nothing wrong. I was like, what's the big deal? I don't, I don't even know why she's upset with me, right? I was, I was the victim in all of this. Um, <laughs> yeah, you laugh now, but you've all been there. And it was about that time that one of my friends lovingly took me aside and catching me off guard, he said bluntly, Greg, you're kind of a jerk sometimes. And then as the conversation continued, he basically told me that when, you know, when, when I spoke sarcastically to others and especially to Audrey, I wasn't acting Christ-like. I wasn't acting like the loving and encouraging husband to her that I should be. 
And again, you know, I was caught off guard at first. I was like, what? What are you talking about? You know, that's stupid. Um, you know, because I thought I was a nice guy. My name is Greg. After all, aren't Gregs all nice guys? Isn't that, isn't that how it's supposed to work? So as hard as this revelation was to receive, eventually after, you know, spending some time in, in prayer and uh, repentance and asking God to break down the barriers of denial and stubbornness and my refusal to admit that I was wrong, Eventually, you know, after my flesh and spirit were done battling it out, eventually I received that truth, and, and the Holy Spirit was able to work in my heart and, and change my heart and change the way that I spoke to others, especially to my wife. My point here is that it took someone I trusted to point out my sin to me. I, I want to repeat that. It took someone I trusted to point out my sin to me in order for me then to both realize it and repent of it and ultimately find grace for it. And now I'm perfect. (laughs) I'm not supposed to laugh that loud. Seriously, though, I'm not perfect. But if it wasn't for that brother in in Christ, you know, I'd I'd still be an ignorantly rude and incredibly sarcastic idiot. And who knows what kind of a strain that would have taken on our marriage moving forward, right? So I'm incredibly thankful for that person for calling me out in my sin. I'm a walking testament as to why it's so important to be willing to watch out for and speak the truth in love to someone who's, who's caught up in sin. And, and so we need to be doing that for one another. Friends don't let friends live in sin. Okay? So it's not a, not a question of, of whether we should be confronting one another. But it's a question of how we're supposed to go about doing it appropriately and in a Christ-like way. Because unfortunately, I think uh, churches and Christians, gen- generally speaking, we haven't seen much of that here, I don't think, but generally speaking, we, we've come to have a bad and kind of prudish reputation when, when it comes to how we react to someone who's been found in transgression, right? You've probably heard stories or, or seen it firsthand of some of the ways pastors or Christians have, have reacted to other Christians whose sins have come into the light, you know, and then what follows is everything from, from, from public shaming to, to rumor mongering to excommunication to, to slamming them on Twitter to kicking them off the worship team or whatever, right? Uh, I heard a story once of how, how this, this teenage girl, she got pregnant um, with a teenage boy and they both went to the same church and that obviously got out. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty obvious. And, there, and once that came to light, their pastor announced to the, to the congregation that everyone was to stop all communication or friendship with them, because he's taking a Bible verse out of context, which was dealing with a much larger issue. Everyone was to stop communication with them until they both publicly apologized for their transgressions to the whole church. That's crazy, right? That's ridiculous. Those teens definitely had been in sin. Absolutely. Sure. But they needed help and grace not to be alienated and pushed away. Think they're going to want to come to church after that? That's certainly not how Jesus treated the woman caught in adultery. Right? Or, or Peter, after Peter denied him three times. No, grace and restoration was evident in Jesus' response. Every time. No public shaming or punishment was involved. 
except for what he took on himself, right? So, the, but the thing is, is that these types of, of, of poor reactions and knee-jerk reactions are actually bred in a culture of religious works and legalism, okay? Legalism breeds a culture of judgment that's often disguised as discernment, a culture of pride that's often disguised as concern, or a culture of shame and punishment that's often disguised as discipline. It's a culture that adds to the weight of sin rather than one that seeks to remove it altogether. So legalism is a culture of burden. The Apostle Peter, as recorded in the book of Acts, he proclaims this very truth to, to some legalists who came to be known as Judaizers. They could have been the very same Judaizers that are, that are plaguing the Galatian church. And he says to them in Acts 15.10, he says, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? So that, that yoke he's talking about is the law, right? It's legalism, which, which forces us to carry the weight of our guilt, to try to atone for our sin and shame through, through works or through, through punishment, which actually only works to add to the burden of our sin. And it's way too much to bear. And this is the complete opposite of what Jesus has in mind when he proclaims to us and invites us in Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, when he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So our, our mandate as Christians, when, when we see evidence of sin in each other's lives, isn't, isn't to take it upon ourselves to, to bring punishment or, or condemnation or, or add to the yoke or burden that already exists in their lives because of that sin. But rather, in light of Jesus' invitation that we just read, and as we'll discuss this morning, this is what we're supposed to do. Again, let's read from Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So when it comes to, to confronting sin and transgression, in others. Paul's purposefully speaking against that culture of legalism, which again places even more burden on the sinner. And he does this by defining for us instead an alternative way of confronting and admonishing sin, which actually lifts the burden off of the sinner. Because that's what we need, right? We need the burden lifted and removed. We don't need it hammered in even more. In fact, as I mentioned earlier, Paul lays out for us in these two verses that we just read seven specific conditions for how, why, and when we're to admonish one another in a way that lifts the burden. And so we're going to go through those conditions right now. It's basically a kind of checklist to consider before we admonish someone, So, which means that if you can check off all seven conditions, then not only do you have the go-ahead to do it, but you actually have the responsibility. All right, let's start with the first condition then for admonishing one another. First condition is, number one, they're in the family. 
It must be in the family. And by family, I mean our status as sons and daughters in Christ. So Paul writes brothers, or some translations um, interpret it as brethren or brothers and sisters. However you want to say it, the, the point is that he's speaking to believers here. We have, to, we have to realize that. By knowing who he's speaking to, then we know who it's for, right? He's speaking to believers. He's speaking to other Christians. And so we need to be aware, first of all, that the instruction, instructions in these verses are for Christians within the church body. This means that this isn't a guideline for how we're to call out unbelievers in their sin on Facebook, okay? And neither are these instructions meant for only the pastor of your church. Sorry to say, you can't just report someone's sin to me and then think you're off the hook because I'm going to take care of it. We can't just, you know, you can't just send everyone to my office. I'm not the principal of your middle school, all right? And sure, some situations require spiritual authority, and if someone's not listening, you, you can come to me, and we'll figure it out, right? But, but still, we're all responsible, together in community, as the family of God, to be watching out for each other. Just as we discussed a couple weeks ago, it's our love for our family, right? It's our love for each other which should compel us to speak the truth in love. And because we love each other, we look out for each other, especially when we see someone who's in danger of reverting back into slavery to sin. You know, like Brad was saying earlier, there's many traps and thorns that we can get stuck in, and we need to be pulling each other out of those things, right? And on that end, being in the family is also important because it's usually only through family, through that relationship or a deep friendship like that, that we're actually able to even have an open and honest conversation with each other in that way. Um, without, you know, without fear of breaking the bond that we have. You know, even if there's initial tension or hurt feelings, you know, if we're family, we, we stay as family, right? Um, bottom line, for this type of conversation to even be deemed appropriate or effective, we should probably have at least somewhat of an established relationship, trust, or friendship with a person before we try to correct them or call them out in their sin. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but I usually only take something like this to heart if it comes from someone I know and trust, or rather than over the words of a, of a stranger or someone that I barely ever talk to, right? For, like, like if someone never talks to me, and then one of the first things that they decide to say to me is to come up to me and be like, hey, you're in sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like, step off. You don't know me, right? <laughs> step off. Is there a problem with that? <laughs> step off. That's from Seinfeld. It's my wife's fault. She washes it. Anyways... Um, so again before we decide to to confront someone in their transgressions or even if you're not sure you should ask yourself is that person a brother or sister in christ and do i know them well enough to have this conversation and if the answer is no then maybe consider and pray about a different approach of speaking truth to them or in that case you can Come to me with your concerns. Or get to know them as a person first. Genuinely get to know them, not just as a, as a sinner. Don't define them by their, their sin. Get to know them as a person. Invest in them like Jesus did when he ate with sinners. But if the answer is yes and you do know them and you love them and, and you're concerned about them and you care for them, then as long as the rest of the following conditions are met, then you probably should talk to them about your concerns. In fact, you're probably 
responsibly. You probably should talk to them about your concerns. Which brings us to the second condition, which is number two, they must be caught in transgression. So it says, brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, so they must be caught in transgression. In other words, the sin in their life needs to be evident before we call it out. This point seems obvious, right? Why would we call out a sin if it's not evident? But sometimes we think there's sins when there aren't sins, and sometimes we're assuming that there's sins, right? So, so we often ignore or even abuse this, this condition. For example, I was once taken aside as a teenager in the church I grew up in, and I was taken aside by an adult in my church, and, and was told very bluntly that playing the electric guitar in church was wrong. Satanic. I don't know, they didn't say satanic, but that was the implication, right? So this was someone who was clearly troubled by me and my electric guitar, but not because I was in sin, but because my actions just didn't line up with their preferences and their traditions. So before we call someone out, we need to ask, is this actually a sin issue in their life? Or am I just being opinionated and trying to push my own personal convictions on them? We need, we need to ask that. Paul's instructions to us in these verses is not an invitation or an excuse to quarrel with or condemn someone over our differences or disputable matters or personal preferences and convictions. For example, again, you might have a personal conviction against drinking alcohol, right? And you've committed your abstinence from it to God. He's saying, you know, someone I know in my family struggled with alcohol abuse or, or I used to struggle with alcohol abuse and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to use it as an idol anymore. You know, I'm, I'm giving that to you, God. And that's great. That's awesome. If you're doing that, good for you. That's, that's amazing. But that doesn't mean you can try to correct or judge other Christians if they have a glass of wine. Why? Because that's not a sin issue. It's your own personal conviction and preference. We can't confuse the two or we'll just end up causing dissension. We'll be arguing over matters that don't matter. Romans 14, 1-4 draws this idea out when it contrasts the believers who are, are struggling with walking away from traditional Jewish food laws. You know, these new, new Christians used to be Jews and they, they're struggling of, with you know, being open to just eating whatever they want now. And, and he contrasts them with believers who, who don't find it difficult at all. And so he said, and, and they're, they're both arguing about this, right, with each other. And so Paul says to them, no. He says, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Whatever. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. So who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand for the Lord. Not what they eat, for the Lord. Not their personal convictions, but the Lord is able to make them stand. Right? In other words, if it's not something affecting their standing with God, then chill out. Chill out. Relax. And check your own motivations. And similarly to that, I think we also need to make sure that we're not confronting people simply based on our false assumptions about them either. Chris Bruno and Matt Dirks, uh, in their book, 
where I got a lot of this information from, so thank you to them. But they write this. They say, the other person must be caught in transgression. The sin must be clear and present, not just assumed and implied. This is particularly true when confronting someone's underlying motivations, which are extremely hard to discern. So again, Paul tells us we we, we have the go-ahead to confront transgression only when it's evident, not if it's assumed or we think, oh, that couple's hanging out together a lot. I think, you know, I think they're going to, I think I'm going to confront them about that. You don't know, so don't. We can't just assume these things. So before we confront someone, we should take some time to dig into the word, pray about it, so that we can be sure that what we're concerned with or worried about in someone else isn't, first of all, us just making assumptions or false accusations about them, and secondly, that it isn't just us trying to place our own personal preferences or convictions on them either, but rather that it's actual, evident, unrepentant sin that's causing real damage and needs to be addressed. In that case, we're definitely called to address it, again, as long as we're equipped to do it, which leads to the third condition. Number three, you must be spiritual. It says, you who are spiritual, you must be spiritual. We need to be working not in the power of legalistic self-righteousness or religious elitism, but rather in the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. The previous passage in Galatians, which we'll come back to in a couple of weeks, actually draws out for us what living in the power of the Spirit looks like as we relate to one another. And we see the fruit of that, and it's having, having love, joy, Patience, kindness, self-control, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. This is so important. Because sometimes we tend to call out someone. It's like a knee-jerk reaction when we call out someone and their sin from a place of anger or or frustration or bitterness or or self-righteousness or whatever, which never goes well. That never goes well. But in the power of the Spirit, we'll actually be able to have grace and kindness, and even compassion for the person we're confronting. Even if their sin had directly hurt us personally, in the power of the Spirit, we can still approach them with compassion, with grace. And not only that, but it's ultimately the Spirit working that will bring the healing and restoration, which brings us to the next condition that Paul lays out for us. Number four, we should seek to restore. We should seek to restore. So the the goal in confronting someone in their sin should always be to restore that person in their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That should always be the goal. Restoration. If that's not your goal, you're doing it wrong. And you probably have bad motivations. And it's unfortunate, but we do tend to call each other out for the wrong reasons, right? Like we're we're running around acting like the sin police, blowing our whistles every time we see a sin, because I'm imagining British police for some reason. So every time we see someone sin, we're like, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, right? And and, and we're just pointing it out and, you know, shaming everybody for sinning, right? You know, and shaking our heads and disappointment and shock and horror. Oh, I can't believe that that person is sin. Ah. Let's point them out to everybody, right? But we're not called or commanded 
to be sin police. You know, condemning and doling out justice for, for, for others' transgressions and mistakes. We're called to be what? Lights of Christ. We're called to be ambassadors of grace. Grace that's been given freely because Jesus already paid the penalty for sin. Grace that proclaims in 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So before we confront someone, we need to prayerfully examine our own heart and our own motivations. Because if your motivation in confronting someone and their sin is to, you know, as I said earlier, maybe to conform them to your own personal preferences or to control them or to shame them or to punish them or to manipulate them or to make you look good by comparison or to bully them or to try to convince them they need to work it off or, or even if it's just because their actions are aggravating you or second-handedly uh, offending you. Basically, if you're addressing someone else's sin for any reason other than to seek to restore them in their faith, then you're not ready or qualified to do it. In fact, you should probably take a look in the mirror and confront your own before you do. Again, the goal for admonishing or even disciplining someone should never, never be to add to the burden of guilt and shame that's already there. As I said earlier, that's going down the road of religious legalism. But rather, our goal in doing it should always and only be to bring them to a place of repentance, you know, where that burden of sin can be removed through Christ so that their relationship with God and with others can be restored. We're seeking restoration. Which leads us to the fifth condition. It should be done in a spirit of gentleness. Restore them in a spirit of gentleness. As I read a couple of weeks ago, Proverbs twelve eighteen says, Speaking rashly is like a piercing sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So people obviously don't respond well to uh, reactionary, harsh, and condescending criticism, right? People don't respond to that. That, that kind of attitude usually just makes things worse, causes walls of offense and stubbornness to be put up. But on the flip side, people do respond, and, and maybe not at first, but people do respond eventually to kind and caring words brought to them in a spirit of gentleness and grace. In other words, if you're feeling hot, or if you're feeling bitter or offended or morally superior or whatever, that's not the time to confront someone. That's also definitely not the time to tweet about it, okay? Twitter's a terrible place, isn't it? It's like strolling through. It's just like people are offended and negative, attacking everyone. It's ridiculous. Let's not be like Twitter. Let's take some time to pray, to forgive, to find peace in God before you have that conversation. Let cooler heads prevail. Because if the person we're confronting understands and sees we're approaching them in love, you know, not to judge them or condemn them or be angry with them, you know, but out of a deep care and concern for them in their faith, they'll be more likely to be receptive to what we have to say. As the word says, it's God's kindness 
that leads to repentance. And we need to be ambassadors of that kindness if we're to see them restored. Which brings us to the sixth condition we're given, which is number six, guard your heart. Guard your heart. Galatians, the second half of Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. And I love that he slips this in here. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is, this is another incredibly important part of the whole process. Because, first of all, it reminds us that we're just as susceptible to sin as the person we're confronting. This is so important that we get that. 1 John 1, 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So this is important, first of all, because with this in mind, it certainly removes any claim or idea that we can have in these, in these conversations of any self-righteousness, self-righteousness or religious elitism on our part, right? Because if we're aware and if we recognize that it could just as easily be us caught up in sin, and it very well might be us caught up in sin next week, then we'll be way more likely to approach that person with empathy and compassion. Right? It's only as we remember and recognize how much grace God has given to us through Christ where we'll be able to give and show that grace to others. So we can't forget that grace that we've been given. And on that note, this also reminds us that we don't have to be perfect ourselves before we address someone else's transgressions. I say that because I think some of us shy away, you know, in the fear of being a hypocrite or whatever, we, we, we shy away from confronting someone else in their sin, you know, because we're like, oh, I'm just as bad as that person sometimes. I, sl- I slip up and I sin too sometimes. So who am I to say anything to this person? And so we use that as an excuse to, to not say anything at all. And yes, we should always make sure that we're addressing the plank in our own eye. Absolutely. But if we all waited until we were perfect before we watched each other's backs and warned each other and, and called each other out, would it ever happen? No. It wouldn't, nobody's perfect. By saying keep watch on yourselves, Paul's recognizing our imperfection, and yet still calling us to confront and restore each other. Paul's recognizing our imperfection and yet still calling us to confront and restore each other. In fact, I think this actually helps us in having this conversation because we we can now identify and, and relate with the person as, you know, as we're given opportunity to be open and honest with them as well in our own struggles and the ways that we've been restored by Jesus. So don't let being imperfect stop you from having each other's backs. But on the other hand, we're also told to keep watch on ourselves because these types of conversations are usually difficult. And sometimes the person we're, we're approaching will react defensively or harshly, it definitely can happen. I did it when, when I got approached, you know. My friend said I was a jerk sometimes. I didn't, I, I didn't react well to that. So it happens sometimes. So it's definitely tempting when that happens to, at that point, lose our cool or get frustrated 
and then respond to them negatively or argumentatively in our in a spirit of pride and arrogance, right? This is especially good advice for spouses. So Paul's reminding us to, to watch ourselves and to not lose our head and get caught up in sin as well, even as we have that difficult conversation. And this is, of course, another reason why it's so important to be working in the power of the Spirit as we do this. We need, we need that, that boldness. We need that grace and that, that faithfulness of God to be working in us as we have these conversations. And this leads us to the seventh and final condition that Paul lays out for us here for when we're confronting and admonishing someone in their sin. This is the big one. Number seven, be ready to bear their burdens. Be ready to bear their burdens. This is so important and crucial because this is how we're going to go about bringing someone to restoration. Galatians 6 verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This is how we fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. In other words, be ready to work. Be ready to invest. Be ready to take on the burden with those we're trying to help. You know, depending on the circumstance or size of the transgression or the attitude of the person we're approaching, whatever, you might be required to give of your energy and time to be there for that person, to cry with them, to feed them, you know, food and the word, to pray with them, to listen to them, to love them, to lead them to Christ for as long as it takes. Because we need to understand the moment the moment that you approach someone about their sin, you're committing to join them in that process of restoration. The moment you approach someone about their sin, you're committing to join them in the process of restoration. We can't just call someone out and then walk away and then hope they figure it out. That does nothing. That's not the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love others as yourself. And Jesus showed us what love is when he humbled himself and laid down his life in order to rescue and restore us from the weight of our sin. That's what love looks like, to lay down your life. That's the law of Christ. As Bruno and Dirks write again, the process of restoration probably won't happen overnight. So offer your ongoing love, support, and gentle accountability to them. Help that person take concrete steps to overcome the sin through God's spirit-empowered grace, which is the law of Christ. So bottom line here, we need to be ready to stand with and help carry their burden if we're going to confront them about their sin. We need to be ready to do that. Which means that if we're not ready, if 
we're not willing to invest in that person, then we're simply not ready or qualified to call them out on their sin. But honestly, if I, I would argue that if, if, if we truly cared about one another and our motives are pure, we'll be ready to do whatever it takes, just as Jesus did for us. So be ready to carry one another's burdens as we lead them back to Christ. But with all that being said, if you feel like, you know, you're falling short in some of these conditions or guidelines, the res- the, your response shouldn't be to just give up. Be like, ah, oh, I guess I'm not the person to do this. No, get yourself ready. That should be a warning sign for you. If I'm not ready, if I'm not ready for this, then, then where's my relationship with Christ? That should be a warning sign for you. So get yourself ready. Humbly examine yourself. You know, re- repent where you're falling short. Ask the Lord to prepare your heart, to, to fill you with, with his spirit and, and his word. To give you opportunities to build deeper relationship, relationships with others in the church. Don't, don't just give up. Become equipped. Become prepared and positioned so that you can have these conversations, so that you can stand up for, for, for other believers within the church when the need arises, so that we can love one another as Christ loved us. And on that note, I want to read to you Romans 5, 7 to 10, which reminds us you know, how much God loves us, and how much Jesus displayed that. Romans 5, 7 to 10 says, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Jesus loved us. He died for us, even while we were sinners and enemies to God. He carried the burden of our sin upon himself at the cross, all in order to remove that burden from us, to, to reconcile us, to save us, to restore us. To God. And this is the type of love and compassion and humility and grace that we're to model and more importantly to proclaim to one another in Jesus' name if and when we get caught up in transgression and sin. So, in conclusion, let me read one more time Galatians 6 1 to 2. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And keep watching yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a, what a privilege we have to be part of this family, to be sons and daughters of the Father, to be brothers and sisters in the body of Christ.
Lord, I thank you so much for the grace and the love with which you've poured out upon us. As Jesus willingly bore the burden of our sin upon himself at the cross. And I pray that in light of that grace that we've experienced, that we've received, that we walk in, that we would be able to have that kind of grace towards one another. Even when we see each other in sin, even when we see each other slipping, making mistakes, acting against your will. Lord, in those, in those moments, I pray that we would be able to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness. That you would give us the, the strength the, and the power of your spirit to love one another unconditionally, even through those things. That you would give us the strength and the patience to carry one another's burdens in whatever way that takes to draw each other back to you in those times, Lord. I pray for anyone this morning who is struggling with temptation or giving in to sin, or that even now that they, they, they would seek prayer and support for that, but that you would just bring restoration to them even in this moment, Lord. That you would bring healing to their soul. Lord, I pray that moving forward, as you've been building in us, Lord, that we would continue to be a church of restoration, of grace, of love, as we proclaim your name, Jesus. Amen.